Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hey, everybody, this is Pascal. We are back with another episode of Disrupt Disruption, today with Mary Grove. Mary is a dear friend of mine. You will hear a little bit about this story, our backstory, in a second. She today is the managing partner of Bread and Butter Ventures, where she brings nearly two decades of leadership experience in technology, early stage investment, and startup ecosystem growth together. She began her career working on the Google IPO and went on to lead new business development partnerships, negotiating early-stage product and technology deals worldwide. This is where we met. Mary then served as the founding director of Google for Startups, leading the company's global efforts to support entrepreneurs in over 100 countries. This was the place where I wish I would have worked when I was at Google, but didn't. After 15 years at Google, Mary shockingly quit the mothership and worked as an investment partner at Revolution's Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, where she started investing into dozens of companies in a range of sectors, including healthcare, enterprise software, fintech. She built the fund's portfolio support platform and built a network of over 150 mentors and partners to guide startup growth. She then left this and co-founded and became the managing partner of Bread and Butter Ventures. We'll talk about this in a little bit. She's also the co-founder and executive director of an organization which is also very dear and close to my heart, Silicon North Stars, a nonprofit that she founded with her husband in 2013 to help young Minnesotans from underserved communities pursue careers in tech. It's an incredible program. Do check it out. We'll put the link in the show notes, Silicon North Stars. Truly, truly incredible. I had the great pleasure of seeing the participants in this program a couple times. Mary, I'm excited to have you on this podcast. Pascal, that was so generous and so kind. Thank you for having me. And I'm just so grateful for all of our years of friendship and working together and can't wait for this conversation. Let me start off. I mentioned we didn't have all that many people on the podcast who are in the startup community, mostly because I today work mostly in the corporate space. I'm curious, as a person who's got such incredible experience in the startup community, building ecosystems, working with founders. How do you look at disruption? How do you, like, what's your take on it? How do you conceptually think about it? That's a great question. You know, this disruption, this concept is at its epicenter, so core to the process of building a startup, right? What would motivate a founder Mm -hmm. to tackle an audacious, world-changing, game-changing problem And it does all center around this concept of disruption. When you think about it from a startup's perspective, and truly, as you alluded to, I've been really fortunate to work with hundreds of thousands at this point of entrepreneurs all around the world. And the common theme comes back to this. Founder is fundamentally solving a problem that she, he, and millions, if not billions of other people on the planet also have. And so that personal story, that personal narrative and connection we see in almost every team that we, certainly that we invest in and and most teams that we meet and work with in some capacity. But this disruption comes from, at its core, stepping back and looking at the macro ecosystem around that 
space. So for example, I invest really actively in healthcare and digital health. And if you examine the entirety of the healthcare ecosystem, and then maybe specifically within that women's health, and maybe within that specifically pelvic conditions, just looking at all of the different layers of the ecosystem, what are those barriers? And having worked at large corporations, having worked at Google for 15 years, right, I've really come to believe that so much of that change and that massive opportunity from disruption has to come from the outside. It's incubated, it's born through a process where you can have rapid iteration, you can have testing, you can have failure, it might not work, you can move super, super rapidly. And it's not to say that disruption, of course, can exist in a big company, but it's just much, the barriers to entry are so much lower when you're starting it in the startup paradigm. I'm curious, you mentioned something around this idea that disruption often has to be initiated outside of the context of an established organization, incumbent, for various points. And we talked about, I had many guests on the podcast who talked about this specific point. From your perspective for startup, do you think that the more common way for a startup is to do the disruption and then get integrated into an incumbent, join an incumbent? Or is the the Rex to Riches story, the let's build the next Amazon, the more common one? That's a great question. I think that the reason that it often makes sense to, to disrupt and innovate quickly as a startup, the reason it's easier, I'll give you an age-old example, is social media in its early days when you had all these really viral new services, apps, technologies that got introduced, it rarely, rarely did it come top down from a big company, mm-hmm. right? And there was something sort of fundamentally, maybe it didn't embrace the notion that that a platform like Google could create a social network, aka, you know, call it Buzz, call it Open Social, call it, I think it was called Google Talk at the time, of course, Google Plus, right? Versus these viral, these TikTok, TikTok WhatsApp, Instagram, of course, they all became part of larger platforms eventually, hence the question around the exit. But there was something so scrappy and enticing about the novelty of this emerging brand new technology. And that paradigm, I think, applies in a lot of cases today, even though the, the vertical or the sector might be very different and the reasons for lack of adoption might be very different. And so we, we see, just as a pure percentage and numbers basis, a lot more companies going down from the early stage. We know that the survival rate for seed startups is less than 50% of seed stage companies go on to, to survive. Those who do, you, you have a lot more in the exit bucket, right? Meaning got acquired, whether that's a, a smaller sort of talent acquisition, a tech tuck-in, or a large-scale you know, M&A deal, then you have who go become the billion-dollar-plus public companies. And that's just a numbers game too. I think both paths are very viable, but I do believe that both outcomes are equally exciting and are equally viable when you're starting out on day one. In that context, in the venture scene, there's the old adage, we invest into people, not the idea, because the idea will change the proverbial pivot, et cetera. (laughs) And I see you eye rolling a little bit. I'm curious from your experience as an investor and as having built incredible organizations like Google for Entrepreneurs, how much is that true? How much do you actually believe investing into the people versus the idea? Because I think there's an interesting correlate to the corporate world where clearly we invest into the idea, right? Rarely have I seen a corporate saying, oh, we've got this incredible team. Let them just do a thing and let them pivot 15 times, but right. rather a, no, we have got this idea. We need to build this thing. 
Absolutely. Especially in an economic environment where, you know, you are seeing layoffs, right? And there, there is a, that constant trade-off of resources and what's the ROI on those resources. From a, from a startup perspective, 100%, we, we always say the biggest determinant, and we truly mean it, the biggest determinant in our decision is absolutely the founding team. Hmm. And I prefer to invest in multi-founder teams not to say that we would never, and I, I certainly have invested in solo founding teams, but having that diversity of perspectives, backgrounds, the, the true team sport that is building a company, especially from zero to one or zero to 10, it's really, really helpful. And we think that's a great recipe. And the founder profiles and backgrounds can be wildly different. There's no box you have to check in terms of technical founder, or design founder, right? That can really vary. But Team, team, team is is absolutely fundamental to that decision. So there is a lot of truth to the old adage, but I'm going to say it's both and because Hmm. the product almost certainly will change. The go-to-market strategy almost certainly will be at least tweaked, if not changed dramatically. Maybe how you monetize, right? All of the, the other slides in that initial vision deck. But fundamentally, we are underwriting a lot of risk at this stage, and especially in in a macroeconomic environment that is challenging, meaning we know that it's going to be difficult for companies to raise after this round unless they clear certain milestones and hurdles and de-risk the opportunity. Because I I invest primarily at the seed stage, which means company has a live early version of the product and market with a little bit of utilization data under belt, maybe no revenue yet. And so there's a lot to prove out before that next round. So I had this very existential question this morning, Pascal, because I met with a company that I've been getting to know and digging into for a while. And that's what I was thinking of in this market, right? We have phenomenal team on paper and in practice, stellar co-founding team, just really, really strong technical business, just fits all the criteria you would hope for. The science and the technology seem very solid, very promising, very exciting. But I have this big question right now around the go-to-market. And it's again, it's a pre-launch, product are they is that the right approach how do we know how do we test their assumptions is that customer going to buy it and i have some serious questions about that and so this is the very question that you've asked right if it's the right team an excellent product the other thing is you know is this the right is this the right market approach and is this the right time in the market Hmm. i think that we don't talk enough in venture about market timing and how much that can make or break a specific company so to me, it is a both and, especially in this market where capital is not easy to come by. And we know that great teams aren't just going to go out in under a year and raise again without making significant progress. So we've been a lot more disciplined about making sure that, yes, the founding team is there, but the idea has to be good too. I always wonder, how much do you find the the radical pivot actually to be the norm versus the outlier? So the classic example, you know, Slack originally invented as a chat platform for a game and then the game basically disappeared and Slack became whatever it is and now it's Salesforce. How much of that story, which is being perpetuated throughout Silicon Valley, right? Like the pivot and you want to build a self-driving car and you end up like, you know, building whatever, like a video sharing platform, you're good. How much of that is actually real? A fair bit of it is. And usually they're not that dramatic of pivots. Although I would say that, you know, our preference, my preference is certainly to invest in situations to underwrite teams that we think are have completely binary outcomes, meaning this is such a huge bet and a huge swing 
that it's either going to go to zero and fail mm-hmm. or become a multi-billion dollar home run opportunity. It's the category creator or it expands the size of the market. And we're completely okay with that. Because again, in venture, you're building a portfolio, right? And in our case, it's 25 to 30 companies per fund. Mm-hmm. This portfolio approach where the math of it is typically in that situation, you're expecting maybe three to four companies in that portfolio to return your fund, hopefully multiple times over. And some will not make it and some will maybe be a 1x, a 2x, a 3x return. So you're thinking of it that way. But that said, every single investment we make has to be in one that we think can be that that in that three to four company outlier. And so we're comfortable with that. But because of that, as you might guess, there, there are a lot of, of pivots of, hey, we went to market, we tried it for six months. And the timelines for pivoting, by the way, in early stage startups are much shorter because... Hmm. In many cases, you have a year of runway. If you're lucky, you have 18 months. If you're really lucky, maybe a little more, maybe less than a year. And so we really can't afford to say, let's test this for three quarters mm-hmm. and come back and, and analyze the data, right? If it's like, boom, it's not working and after three months, unless it's inherently something like you're selling into a payer you know, insurance company that's an 18-month sales cycle and you know that. But for the most part, if, if you're building software and selling quickly, the sales cycle is shorter you have to pivot pretty, pretty dramatically. So yes, there are, there have even been a couple of companies, I'm not going to lie, where in the time since we committed to making the investment and the time it took them to close out the round, then I later realized that I actually invested in a different company than the one I thought I did. Right? And again, it does come back to that belief that this is the right team. This is the right problem. And there's going to be tweaks in the product and the go to market. It's so interesting. I wonder how much we can learn from, from that approach in the corporate world, right? Like the the shift away from the very specific product idea we're having, but rather saying there's an opportunity, a vague market opportunity, and then, you know, finding the right teams. Which brings me to another question about teams. I'm curious, how do you assess the team? What do you look for in terms of their leadership qualities? I mean, clearly they need to have expertise in the thing they're doing, but what are the leadership qualities you look for in figuring out, is this a team you want to back? Absolutely. So definitely the sector acumen and expertise, and mm-hmm. and that can be achieved in many ways too, right? We have some founders who, for example, in our healthcare portfolio, I'd say it's about half and half, whether the founder is a clinical, has a clinical background or has brought that on board to complement, you know, her or his skill set. So certainly that's there. We primarily look for, you know, at this stage, it's founders who are truly, I would say magnanimous is the word that comes to mind in terms of being able to have huge vision, attract great talent, inspire people to work for you for way less than market rate at the seed stage, right? And because they believe in the vision and they believe in the leadership. So that sort of magnetic, diehard belief in yourself and the vision and the this, this startup, for sure. We look for founders who are very coachable and receptive to feedback. Not that that means by any chance means that you need to take our feedback all the time, but if there's any layer of defensiveness, we're not Mm. going to have an open communication partnership two-way early on. You know, we won't move forward with that relationship because we want the same in in both directions where there's complete trust and candor from you to us as well, for sure. We look for founders who are immediately able to identify, recognize, their, the gaps and skill set on the management team in the business they're building and be authentic and vulnerable about that. It's a 0% negative. It's really positive, right? If you are 
the strongest clinical leader in looking at autoimmune disorders in the world, but you don't have a deep business financial modeling CFO type hat, totally fine. Let's not hide behind that for two years while instead of bringing on a good resource early on. And so those are some of the intangible qualities. But I would say if I had to pick one thing that sets truly exceptional founders apart, and it's very simple and achievable by anyone, but is such a denominator changer, is just exceptional communication. And I, I have in terms of regular investor updates, transparency with your team, how you communicate with from the newest hire to the, the C-suite of your organization, just steady, consistent, transparent, reliable communication. And we, for example, ask all of our companies when we invest that they commit to sending a simple monthly written investor update. That's in addition to all of the offline one-on-one working sessions, brainstorming sessions that we might do, just a simple written that tracks the consistent KPIs month over month, quick email it should take you no more than 15 minutes, but it's the consistency. And, and on the first of every month, as a flood of these come in, we as a team pour over them. Hmm. We spend time on every single one trying to come up proactively with, hey, these are three customer intros we can make. Have they met this investor? Hmm. I know this PR firm who would be a good fit. And I know that the ones where those updates don't come in or if a company goes silent, you immediately assume something's wrong, something's hmm. going wrong. So it's a simple thing, Pascal, and yet it's actually very rare to have that level of exceptional communication. So I share that because the good news is that is something that anybody can implement. The anybody can implement brings me to another question. Do you think good founders are born or can they learn? Can you learn to be a good founder? Is an, is an exceptional entrepreneur someone who's got something in there, whatever, DNA, social upbringing, you know, whatever, nature or nurture debate? Or is this literally something which you can foster in people. And again, I think it's an interesting question for a company, right? It's like, do I need to look for this type of people and bring them in? Or can I take people who are promising in other areas and actually educate them? I'm a big believer, and possibly that's fueled by my hope that this is the case, that it's both that it's both nature and nurture and can mm-hmm. be nurtured. Because I fundamentally believe as long as people possess that voracious curiosity and desire to learn, and I myself am a product of that, right? I, I didn't grow up anything near near proximal to the, the scene of venture capital. My parents were entrepreneurs. And, but just that simple desire and tenacity and willingness to continue and continue, continue relentlessly hmm. trying to learn and working hard. And I believe that can be applied certainly to to anything. And, and these founder stories, it bears out, right? I mean, one of the companies that I'm really close with and very excited about in our portfolio is a maternal health company named Delphina. And they're using building an AI model for maternal fetal monitoring to predict complications in pregnancy and then therefore a, a care plan as well as a delivery plan really to improve outcomes for mothers and babies. And the founder, Dr. Sinan Ibrahim, you know, he was actually in medical school and trained in neuroscience, trained medical doctor, when he witnessed a stillborn stillbirth, when he was doing the, the OB rotation, had the aha moment of, we're working with all these data sets. This is preventable, potentially. This doesn't have to be the case. And totally pivoting from that, right? Having not been a health tech founder per se. And it's just a great example. And he's just absolutely crushing it with the clinical expertise, his business acumen, his partnership acumen, his leadership. I mean, it's 
really impressive to watch. But there are so many of those stories. I could give you 59 others huh. in a portfolio of 60 companies where the path that led someone there was never, this was my destiny in a way. It was generally something, something happened in my life that made me really analyze this issue and take everything I've got and usually scrap and learn and claw together the resources to, to just to get started. Bread and butter is in Minnesota. You have how many Fortune 500 headquartered in your direct proximity? Like dozens, right? Yes. Yeah, so Minnesota is home to 16 Fortune 500 companies, right. which is the highest number of Fortune 500 companies per capita in the nation. And beyond that, we have approximately 60 or so companies who are headquartered in Minnesota who do north of a billion dollars of annual revenue, meaning the scale of big enterprise is large here. And that to me, moving from Silicon Valley, where I had lived for almost two decades, right, that feels like the quote unquote center of the universe. Right. It's really, really fascinating to come to a place where you have such a diverse economy in terms of mm. the types of corporations and companies yeah. that are here. And what's been interesting to me is that talent has flowed pretty, pretty fluidly amongst those companies. Mm. Meaning you could go from a long-term career in, in food to suddenly being an executive at a healthcare company or finance to energy and sort of that transfer of transferability of yeah. a lot of the knowledge and skill set. In that context, you must see the maybe eternal struggle of startups working with corporates and corporates working with startups. Curious from your perspective, what are the the do's and the don'ts. We have a lot of corporate people listening to this podcast. How can they make the, their own life better and the lives of the startups they want to work with better? I have so much empathy for both sides of the equation here from mm. corporate to startup because in part of my time at Google, I worked in a wonderful team called New Business Development and we did product partnerships and partnerships ranging from the, the tiniest contract to negotiating with the Fortune 500 and the largest tech companies in the world. And I understand firsthand because I was on the other side of the internal conversation is always, I'm sorry, Google can't partner <laughs> at our scale. We can't partner with a, such a small company because right. the infrastructure cannot support the scale at which we do everything. And that's a very unfulfilling answer to hear. And I, I was the one sort of producing that answer multiple times over. And now I'm on the other side of, hi, I'm representing <laughs> this amazing cutting edge company in this sector, knocking on the door of the giant and saying, but here's a great opportunity. And so... It's fascinating. We've spent so much time learning. So as context for everybody, we have something called the Bread and Butter Innovation Circle, which is our way of operationalizing and trying to realize that the corporations actually are voracious to work more with the startups. There's just, and startups obviously vice versa, but nobody has easily built here in Minnesota, certainly, that that connective, connective tissue to make that easy to accomplish. And so our Innovation Circle, we have 17 corporations who are member organizations ranging from Ecolab to Cargill, Mayo Clinic, Blue Cross Blue Shield, 3M, US Bank, a whole host of, of phenomenal partners. And our commitment is, you know, anything from some of them are investors in our fund, some help with due diligence when we look at the market and getting smarter about where the industry is headed. But the major areas are customer introductions for commercial opportunities, investment opportunities for the corporation. And then long-term, we hope a path to M&A as we start to understand what their priorities are and what they're looking for, whether or not it's a company in the bread and butter portfolio, we're touching a lot of startups, we're seeing a wide aperture on our, on our lens. So that's the, the basis of the innovation circle. 
from that, the do's and don'ts. So my my teammate, Stephanie Rich, is our head of platform, and she spent a lot of time studying this issue, talking with hundreds of corporate leaders and startup founders. And she actually published, it's, it's publicly available. I can share it. It's called the, the Enterprise Playbook. Hmm. And in it, she has numerous case studies, but specifically outlined tangible buckets, if you will, of how enterprises can think about working with startups. And it is everything from, so just speak to the, the corporate side for a moment, anything from on the tiny dip your toe in the water, right? Get involved in sponsoring and showing up at the startup ecosystem events. Almost every city has a startup week or a similar type event. That'd be the easiest, smallest way. Another bucket is thinking about who are the suppliers that you work with and what is your process like? Is there some bucket of experimentation you can carve out within that to work with newer, smaller companies? Because remember back to the disruption, that could rapidly accelerate some of your goals, but usually the criteria to qualify for working with such a large company is much later stage. So there's that supplier commercial partnership opportunity bucket. There's certainly the bucket of the corp dev, right? Conversations around, can we partner? Can we acquire? Can we acquire? And that's something that we've been spending a lot of time on as well. And then there's the investment piece. Can you invest directly in startups or investing in funds in your sector has been really popular in terms of just getting onto the, being a strategic on the cap table of companies who might be the next big thing in your category without acquiring them yet, right? And so there's a, there's a range of ways, but I think having dedicated, I, I oscillate on this of whether it makes sense to have a dedicated team, hmm. dedicated to working with startups, right? And who can sort of be a concierge to help route through the organization. That's that's very helpful. And so is empowering within your business units, your leaders with the ability to make some entrepreneurial carve-outs, I'll call hmm. them, right? Where Yes, my purview is sourcing XYZ for a company, but I am you know, blessed with the approval to say, spend 20% of the budget at my discretion to pursue these goals that might be in, in the disruptor category. So that's on the enterprise side. On the startup side, that's really dependent on the, on the sector, right? But it's, can you go in with a pilot that is time bound, that is short enough right? To, to not impact your business too much if it doesn't work out, but long enough to prove out whatever ROI that you are going to prove out. So a good example, one of our companies in the portfolio is called Kahila. They're based in Sun Valley, Idaho. They are a platform, a, a scaled software platform for female leadership development in corporate America. Mm-hmm. Think of it as, you know, traditional solutions today are for the senior most women. They're extremely costly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't scale. Thus, it doesn't reach a great number of people. In this case, there are some corporations who've rolled it out to their entire female workforce because the price point is is within reach, the scale is there, and then you're able to connect with a wide community. And so, but for that, right, it's how do we get in and pilot? And then what's the direct ROI that we, we're going to produce? So it's around retention, right, promotion rate, employee happiness surveys, utilization, engagement. Are people actually using and loving my product? What are they saying about the company? And if you can prove that ROI as a startup, great, land and, land and expand, right? Land and expand, get in quickly, do a small pilot. I hesitate to give things away for free, but that strategy can work in certain cases, right, of, of free and. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of ways, but I, I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts, Pascal. I mean, there's, we're always looking 
for ways to, to coach our startups on that. I think it's a fascinating question. And I know from the companies we work with, a lot of them struggle. And I think a lot of them struggle for very bureaucratic reasons, to be honest, like anything from, but it has to go through a legal department. And then the legal department produces a 400 page legal document. <laughs> and the startup just sits there and is like, listen, if I, if I were to pay my lawyer to go through this, like I've just burned through half my capital. Right. And then the second one, I really love your point about the entrepreneurial carve out. And I like, I even love the, the way you phrase it, because I think that's the other part, which is there's a, just a, a very real fear for a leader to say, well, if I do this and it goes south, like, how does this look on me? Right. And the notion that like you can't try things out, there's always a risk involved and we need to be okay with that risk and it's fine. You know, like keep the risk manageable and we can move on if it doesn't work out. At least we learned something or hopefully we learned something. That's exactly. And you and I, you know, yeah. you and I met at Google, that early days paradigm of that 70-20-10 framework right. for anybody not familiar that the, the framework was, you know, 70% should be spent on the core, which at the time of the core of the business was search and ads, 20% mm -hmm. on the, you know, more experimental may or may not work may lead to revenue generation down the road. And at the time, those were things like Google Maps and Gmail and mm -hmm. what ended up becoming the rest of the Google suite of products. And then that 10%, really important, was the blue sky, shoot for the moon, probably going to fail. But may, if it hits, it could be extraordinary and game-changing. And I think having that, right, if you're doing a project in the 10%, it's like, wow, that is that is so cool and lucky that you get to work on that. And then if it fails, it's sort of Okay, that was that was an acceptable outcome. So that same framework, I think, applies to so much of life. But in the corporate mm -hmm. environment, it's absolutely helpful to have that predetermined guardrail, and it's not going to be punitive. In the same context, there's a framework from Bill Pasmo, whom we had on the show. He calls this the 1010-5, where he says the top 10% of leadership team should spend 10% of their time thinking five years out. And I think I love that. it's really important because we see so many companies I recently did a non-representative study, but we did a, a survey with one of the largest consulting firms where we asked a subset of their consultants and said, what do you think that percentage, that 10, 10, 5, actually looks like for your clients? And I think 56% of them said, my client doesn't even think more than a year out, which is crazy. To your point, I love this. Combine this with your 70, 20, 10 framework, the Google framework. As in, where do you allocate your resources, not only your time, but also your, your financial resources, I think becomes really Absolutely. interesting. Um, I love that 10, 10, 5. I'm going to go think about that. <laughs> All yours. It's Bill Passmore. It's not mine. So I'll, I'll give, I keep on giving the gift of other people. We will make sure, by the way, to link to your playbook in our show notes, because I'm sure a lot of the readers would love to like peek into this, because I do know that there's a, a huge desire for corporate people to actually do more with this startup. I think that the important thing, and you and I talked about this quite a bit, is really seeing it as an ecosystem, right? It's not just a, like, here are we, and there's these, like, the startup people, and maybe we acquire them, but that's about it. But really thinking much more holistically at this, right? It's true. It's true. And here in our community in Minnesota, for example, I can think of two great examples in healthcare. One is Alina Health, one of the largest health systems in, in our state. And the other is Blue Cross Blue Shield Minnesota, one of the largest payers and insurance companies in the state. And both large organizations have done tremendous work to partner with early stage companies to the point of early where I, you know, I, I have often myself been surprised that they've partnered with someone that early and 
so happy to see it, mm-hmm. right? Before these pilots in our backyard, and these are affecting issues that are affecting population health, you know, some of the the true on the ground issues that are so urgent in our community. And these are not yet startups who are necessarily going to be able to serve, you know, a billion people. But to see that kind of collaboration is so heartwarming. And I, I love, I'll just use those examples where these are pilots. They may become a core part of the entire health system. It may be a one-time pilot. Let's see. But just having that, it's so rare to see a large logo with such an early stage company. And so more and more of that, I we're seeing more and more of that. And I, I feel really encouraged. Let me end with one question. So you're based out of Minnesota. Bread and Butter, your fund is based out of Minnesota. You were part of Rise of the Rest, where the whole idea was that this enormous amount of innovation, disruption, startup activity happening outside of the typical startup hubs, which really is Silicon Valley and New York at the time, and maybe the Boston Corridor. I'm curious, how do you think about geography these days when it comes to innovation, disruption, the startup ecosystem, clearly you made your bet on the fact that Silicon Valley is not the center of the universe anymore, maybe. <laughs> But I'm curious, how do you look at this? It's been such a fascinating journey the last well, the last two decades, but in particular, the last five to six years for me personally. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Silicon Valley in many ways, certainly professionally, right, and worked at Google for the first 15 years there in New York and some time in emerging markets. But really at the epicenter of Silicon Valley. And I loved it. I truly loved it. I didn't leave because I was running away from something, but it really was that running towards something. And this belief that if you look at the future of the innovation economy, but the big, the big, big challenges that are facing us from food supply chain to the healthcare systems, to climate, to so many more. I mean, a lot of the solutions lie in sectors like traditional, the heart of American manufacturing, for example. Therefore, it makes sense that the -the on-the-ground innovation will be happening in these markets is one point. But a second point is also just the the capital efficiency that you can achieve in these markets when building startups. It's a no-brainer, right, in terms of hiring talent, hiring teams, and then affording them to have great quality of life and be able to support their lives, their families, their communities, Moving to a market like this has been really eye-opening. And I, I have personal reasons to have a huge family in the Midwest on my husband's side. He's from Minnesota. And so it was a nuanced decision for me, not purely driven on the future of investing. But I, on that alone, I have then since decided, based on that, to double down, right? And sort of to go from my role at Google, where we were working in over 100 countries, then to Rise of the Rest, which we were working from coast to coast, outside of the coast, mm-hmm. to right now, we don't only invest in Minnesota, we invest all across the country. However, as we're really focused on a place-based strategy of how we can leverage the resources here. So I have made my bet, Pascal, and I feel like the, the lines of geography are, and I try to ask myself this constantly, is this just because this is where I am physically and, and what I'm immersed in? But the points to me that validate that, no, the lines are more fluid than ever if you were to draw a map today. I I truly believe that for a few reasons. I think that the COVID pandemic has accelerated so much of this virtual, just investing, decision-making, investors for the first time realizing, oh my goodness, there is amazing talent and opportunities for investments all across the country. I'm missing them. And guess what? Because of the capital efficiencies, the valuations of those companies are often much lower. And That's a trend that is here to stay. The paradigm has completely shifted. 
And I'll tell you that we, more and more co-investors in the coast are pinging us on a monthly, weekly, daily basis, right? Looking at companies that they never would have looked at or the number of, I had this moment at the end of the year where I met the eight different health tech funds who I had talked with over email over the years, all in person in Minneapolis, purely coincidentally. There wasn't a conference or a convening. It was, I'm passing through town, I'm passing through town, there to meet some companies. And so that really is a big moment, I think, just to see that shift and the lines are blurred. The future has completely changed. Silicon Valley is and continues to be a very unique and special place. And there are a lot of, of very special places. And so I'm excited. I am. I think that's that's a, the future is a completely different map than it ever has been. On this note, and I love the positivity of this note, and it really fits well into also a corporate context because the vast amount of corporate organizations are not in Silicon Valley, clearly not headquartered in Silicon Valley for very good reasons. Right. So it is beautiful to see that you know, innovation truly starts to spread out more. It becomes much more democratized. And I really adored our conversation. I love the insights you brought to the table. I love this, this nuanced view of looking at innovation and disruption through the lens of a startup, really thinking also, what does this mean in the co context of a corporate? How can I, as a corporate, what can I learn from this? How can I engage in this ecosystem? We'll make sure that all the, the links we talked about in the show notes to your fund, as well as the, the playbook, I would love to link to that for sure. And Mary, thank you so much. I, I wish you all the very best for Bread and Butter. I know it's doing phenomenally well, and I know that you're raising another fund, so it will do even better. <laughs> And I know that you're, you're having a massive impact on your local community. I've seen it in person when I was in Minnesota with you just about a year ago, or less than a year ago. So please keep doing what you're doing. It's incredible. So thank you so much for the conversation. Oh, Pascal, thank you for having me. I'm such a tremendous fan of all of your work and everything that you're involved in. So really delighted to get to be here today. And, you know, to the corporate leaders out there listening, I think there truly is just such an exciting opportunity to continue to bring that entrepreneurial spirit in from the outside, from the inside, from the bottoms up, from the tops down. And, and we're all lucky to be working with Pascal. So thank you for all that you do. And thank you for, for having me today. Thank you. Hey, it's Pascal. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of Disrupt Disruption. If you want more, check out the other episodes we have on this podcast. And if you liked it, do us a favor. Go on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, and leave a quick review. It helps tremendously with getting the insights from our guests out into the world. If you have any questions, send me an email. You can reach me at pascal at finet.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will hear you here soon. <laughs>